I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Catalyst for Change, brought to you by the Shaw Family Foundation. My guest today is the Assistant Director of Partnerships and Engagement for the Education Trust, Marielle Novis. In her work, Marielle supports the Massachusetts Education Equity Partnership, a collective effort of civil rights, social justice, and education advocates from across the Commonwealth, working together to promote educational equity for historically underserved students in our state schools. As a first-generation college graduate and immigrant from the Dominican Republic, Marielle works towards equitable education experiences for all students, particularly black and brown students. Prior to her current work, Marielle was a Boston public schools teacher and an instructional coach. She also launched the Homegrown Program at Teach for America and co-founded the Boston Education Action Network, or BEAN. Good morning, Marielle. Good morning. Good to see you, Jill. So I was hoping we could start at the beginning, at your beginning, if, if that's possible, because I think your story is um, it's a very poignant one and, and an important one for people to know and hear. So um, it's okay if we start there. I know that you moved here from the Dominican Republic. Mm-hmm. And how old were you when you moved here? I was five and a half years old. And um, so it was 1993. Uh, my family actually first arrived to New York City. Um, my dad came up with my two elder siblings to Boston because he had a sibling here um, to essentially kind of start working, um, try to find an apartment. Uh, in the meantime, my sister, who was one year old at that time, and my mom and I stayed with family in New York City mm-hmm. uh, for three months. And we arrived in the middle of a blizzard. <laughs> of course. So it, was, it was truly, it was March 12th, 1993. Um, wow. And I still have a picture where... Uh, you can see us with sort of hand-me-down coats that are about three sizes too large. I was going to say, did you like show up in t-shirts and shorts? And <laughs> Honestly, I feel like that must have been what happened. And we were greeted at the airport and just like enveloped in oh. these huge coats. Um, so it's, it's great thinking back um, to those beginnings because, I mean, despite obviously, literally my mom told us that our like hands froze. All you can see in the pictures is we're just like frolicking in the snow and like have these like huge smiles on our faces. Um, yeah, what do you care? You're five and a half years old. Oh my gosh, I was living, I was living the life. I was yeah, like, what exactly. is this white stuff? Do you remember? <laughs> do you remember the conversations that were happening at home that where the decision was made to move to the U.S.? I remember the feeling. Yeah. Um, not the conversations. I remember sort of this like. I have this very clear memory um, of being at the airport in Santo Domingo before coming to the U.S. And there's um, like a big and it's still the same way now, although, you know, in my memory, it's a lot bigger. Now as an adult, I was like, oh, it was like a a crystal door or um, but in my head, it was like this like massive like crystal barrier. And we crossed it. And when and I like look back very biblical. <laughs> oh. I like looked back and saw my grandma like waving. I'm, I'm going to start crying. Right now. Yeah. Saw my grandma just like waving. Um, and I knew even at that age that I wasn't going to see her for a very long time. Oh yeah. So, yeah. So that I remember, but don't remember the conversation. Oh my wow. goodness. Why am I crying already? I don't know. I do that to people sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, I mean, it's a, it's a massive moment. Um, yeah. you know, I, my, my, my husband's, um, parents moved here from India and, you know, they have, they can remember, I mean, they were adults, they were young adults when they moved here, but you know, it's, it's a, it's a massive thing yeah. to move from your home to, to another place. Yeah. And, it's um, boring. yeah. And, um, and so, and so I just was curious, you were so young, um, what it was like to come in to the U S and, um, oh so did goodness, you, yeah. so you started, you got here in the winter Did you start school in New York and then you ended up in the Boston public school system? In the DR, um, we're one year ahead um, of where we are here. So I had come in having completed first grade. Um, So while we were in New York, I wasn't in school. But then when we um, moved up to Boston, I did start school that September. But I started, they put me in kindergarten too. Uh, So K2 because of my age. Um, and so I attended the Orenberger, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, until third grade and then, um, was admitted to the advanced work, uh, program and in fourth grade went over to the Hennigan elementary school. Mm-hmm. 
where I was in a bilingual program. This is before bilingual programs um, were sort of, I don't know what the technical term is, just not allowed. <laughs> right. Um, so I was one of the last um, classes that actually were able to take classes fully in English and Spanish. Um, and that in so many ways, I'm so grateful for the experience of being able to retain my native language, to be able to read and write in Spanish mm. and have sort of a passion for my native tongue at the same time as I was exploring and learning in English and like reading. I remember reading Charlotte's Web in fourth grade and like just being like <gasps> so sad at the oh, end. It's crushing. I cry every time. I, I cry I so much. I mean, clearly I'm a crybaby. So yeah. <laughs> I cried at the end of that book. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But we, you, you were introduced to that book in English, though, I would imagine. In English, yeah. yeah. It was part of our, like, it was it, it was a strange setup, but, like, three of our classes were in Spanish and three were in English, and then we would switch halfway through the year. Yeah. So I read Charlotte's Web in English. Yeah. Oh. So do you remember the being put on the AWP track, which is a track that you, you sort of, I don't, I don't know, do you test onto it, or are teachers sort of kind of picking kids and saying these kids should be in the advanced working? You know, that is such a good question. I have not asked myself that. I, <laughs> I wonder if it was a combination because I do know that my teacher, Miss Rodriguez at the time, definitely had conversations with my family about it. So I'm mm -hmm. sure there was a process. I just don't really remember it clearly. Yeah, it's interesting. Did you, um, do you remember other kids that you were friends with not being a part of that? Oh, 100% because... Ah, man, it's so interesting thinking back to these things and sort of the things that like at age nine are like huge. Um, yeah. So it was a very um, divisive isn't the word, but it was a very clear dividing line between the kids mm. who were quite literally singled out and plucked out mm. um, and told kind of like, here are all the opportunities that, you know, you can have access to. And then we would come back into the classroom you know, class was ongoing. And it was just this weird feeling of like, there are the four kids that got pulled out because they're quote unquote smart. Mm. And then the rest of us, it, it just created a very weird, um, it's just hard to describe because it was so atmospheric. It was yeah. just like, it was, it's tracking. Yeah. <laughs> and kids yeah. know it, you know? Um, and so- I think that, that was kind of my point. It's, it's kids know it. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And, it, and it starts to sit with you and in yep. you that you you are not you're mm -hmm. not chosen and you are not likely to mm -hmm. be on the ultimate path of success and and you were what, that was third grade that was third grade that was third grade mm -hmm. there you go exactly so so then all right so then you continue through school at the Hannigan and you were you a part of um any programs that because you ended up not going to high school in BPS exactly so my <laughs> So I kind of see my like young life, for lack of a better word, um, through the lens of these two departure points, right? The first we talked about, which was coming to the U.S. Um, and sort of like that moment of uh, rupture. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and then uh, the, the second moment that kind of felt very definitive in my kind of trajectory was when I uh, left BPS to go to private school. So I... Um, again, was identified by my fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Shaw, uh, who said, like, you need to apply to Stepping Stone. So the Stepping mm. Stone Foundation, which has been around now for 30 years um, and has supported throughout those 30 years um, students like me um, who were identified as high achieving students who could, with additional support, be able to, you know, attain a seat in a private school outside of Boston. And so that's what happened. I Signed up for more school. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, did a ton of school um, for two summers uh, at Stepping Stone on Milton Academy's campus, and then also during my sixth grade year, I was at the Irving that year. Um, did more school Wednesday afternoons and then Saturdays all day. Um, and so, why did yeah, you need all this extra school? So it, exactly right um, <laughs> to supplement the what I was not getting at my school. Huh. And it was, I, and I remember being, I mean, again, like I've been a little nerd forevermore. <laughs> so I remember being in sixth grade and my teacher, my science teacher to be specific, would spend the entire science period doing um, Mad Libs. And um, there was a game she wouldn't have us play that was like, 
she would give us a word like graduation. And she would say, with the letters in graduation, make as many more words as you can. Mm. Right. Is it science? (laughs) This is science class, Jill. Right. Got it. (laughs) Yeah. And so exactly. Uh That is why I needed um, supplemental schooling. Um, What I was getting in, unfortunately, what I was getting in my advanced work, BPS, (laughs) sixth grade classroom was just not cutting it. Um, It wasn't going to be what was going to allow me to, you know, have success ultimately at Noble and Greeno School, which is where I ended up going. So, okay. Wait, where did you end up going? Noble and Greeno School. Noble. Okay. You went to Noble. So um, what was that like? Entering mm-hmm. novels for the first day. Absolutely. I mean, you had been prepped to some extent, right? Because Stepping Stone is this massive right. amount of supplementary education yeah. and some social education too, A right? A lot of social, social emotional study skills, very comprehensive. Um, yeah, it's an amazing And program. yet nothing will prepare you um, for when you first step foot into a New England prep school. Yeah. Being yeah. a kid like me, you know, immigrant black kid from Jamaica Plain Roxbury. Um, I remember the when I went to visit the, for the first time, and I kid you not, Jill, <laughs> and apologies to your to your listeners. I truly was like, oh my gosh, this is where white people are. Yeah. <laughs> I Here had they are. not seen more than a handful of white people in my entire life. Um, the first time, I mean, oh, aside from yeah. my teachers. Wait, because yeah. where did you where did you grow up? Which part of Boston? So I grew up in the heart of Jamaica Plain. I grew up on Washington and Glen Road, like right that intersection right there. Okay. Um, and so, and then moved to Roxbury. I lived in uh, right near Grove Hall. Yeah. Um, between Warren Ave and Blue Hill Ave. And so, insanity, insanity is what I. <laughs> I was like, yeah. what oasis have I not? <laughs> <laughs> and I truly, I remember. Uh, I'm not even kidding. I remember like walking out of the admissions office and the first thing I see outside are kids rolling down a hill. Like, mm-hmm. you know, when you kind of like roll your body down. Um, mm-hmm. And I was so confused. I was like, are we at a school? Um, mm-hmm. And the fact that you could walk between buildings um, and that you didn't have to walk in a line and mm-hmm. that your teachers were like laughing with you and having fun with you that um, I remember being in Mr. Marinero's class um, when I visited, um, and he he actually became my seventh grade math teacher when I became a student there the following year. But I remember Mr. Marinero like teaching pre-algebra with um, through like songs, <laughs> and, I, and I could not stop laughing. I thought it was like the most hysterical thing in the world. I thought it was a great way. I was like, I yeah. get it now. Yeah. Um, and I was just completely. And I mean, of course, like everyone was white. I think I saw like one black kid um, and I remember like kind of trying to make eye contact with him um, just to kind of be like, what's it like here? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Did you end up befriending him? Did he? Yes. Yeah. yeah. He became a friend the year after. So he was an eighth grader when I was a seventh grader. And <laughs> so this is, this is pretty relevant though right now. Are you, are you part of any of the conversations that are going on? Both of my kids are in private schools also. Mm-hmm. And, um, there's a lot of conversations happening right now around Black Lives Matter and exactly. private schools. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I, I've, I've seen the Black at Nobles um, yeah. Instagram thread and have been, you know, it's funny because when you are that age um, and, I, and fundamentally, like you're still just a kid who wants to fit in, who wants to be liked by the boys and wants to be friends with the girls. Right. And so you kind of I'll, I'll stop speaking generally for, for me, I felt the need to compartmentalize. Um, mm-hmm. And so, so many of the memories that I, that were re sort of awakened for me through seeing the Black at Noble stuff, for example, was really painful because yeah. I forgot that I kind of just kind of put that away in a part of my brain to not access it ever more. Um, and then I was like, oh, wow. Yeah, that happened to me too. Um, yeah. You know, I... <laughs> That's so interesting that you say that because um, what I find interesting is watching um, white people try to digest what is being posted Mm -hmm. right now. Um, I I think they have such a hard time believing that Mm -hmm. those things are true and continue to happen to this day. And they say things like, well, 
that memory is through the eyes of a mm. child. Mm -hmm. As if that somehow discredits the memory. Correct. And um, as opposed to saying, how do we create conditions that where mm -hmm. those memories, you know, that, that those circumstances don't exist and therefore those memories don't exist. Correct. And I would argue um, the memories of children um, are searing and tend to be kept in a way that we need to honor a bit more. Um, I'm a big fan of youth. <laughs> yeah. It's why I do the work that I do. Um, and I always, as a teacher and today as a mentor and, you know, still educator, always make sure to tell our youth, right? Like your experiences are valid and yeah. they are real and your voice matters and you did not make this up. Right. And I, and I think that particularly for, you know, kids of color going through prep schools, for example, we, you know, we get all the messages that what we are seeing and living and experiencing aren't true. Yeah. That it's not really that way. Right. No, they right. didn't really mean it. That wasn't the intention. Right. Well, the impact was still very real. That's right. right. And um, I, you asked if I was still involved. I am. Um, I was invited by the current head of school to sit on the um, sort of like grads of color task force for nobles. Yeah. And that experience has been magnificent on the one hand, because it's just so amazing to connect with fellow grads of color and just be, hey, <laughs> you know, yeah. just like see each other as adults and kind of think back through our experiences together and think about how things have changed, how they haven't, and, and how we can help create something new. Um, but, you know, these are very much shared experiences, Jill. Um, yeah, and I would hope totally. that, you know, we do, we, it, it's tough, especially when it becomes sort of cognitive dissonance to what you have sort of understood to be true. However, um, I would really challenge people to sit with those testimonies, with those stories, with those posts, um, and really try to experience them from the shoes of a 14-year-old Black girl or a 17-year-old you know, Latina. Right. Um, and try to understand like what that has meant for that person in their life still. What the grads of color have talked about is how much we're still unlearning, undoing from honestly the harm, right, right that right. we absorbed um, throughout those years. And not to say that our experiences were entirely negative. I love nobles. I became a, a trustee in 2014 and served for three years. Um, mm -hmm. And so many of the mentors that have shaped me as a woman and scholar and thinker, you know, came directly from my experience at nobles. Um, however, like we have to be able to speak truth. Yeah. Um, and when people speak it, we, we need to listen. Uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm right there with you. And um, I wonder, I'm very active in these conversations at both of our kids' schools. And, um, you know, do you have a point of view on, you know, it, it's kind of like, where do you start, right? Because as mm -hmm. soon as you start to sit, like you said, with um, these conversations and these memories um, and digest them, digesting them takes an incredibly... Oh yeah, incredible amount of work, and um, and really, you have to. It's almost like you have to be in a meditative state because you have mm -hmm. to be without any of your own context um, mm -hmm. to comprehend them. And so, what I'm grappling with right now is, and maybe you have a point of view on this, is is where where do you start? Like, if yeah. your goal is anti racism, where what's which rung, you know, mm -hmm. is the first rung. Because mm -hmm. it, it, I mean, I'm, I know it's a continuum, but it's, you know, it's, it's hard to contextualize which thing is the most important thing to start with. And maybe it's just you to start. I, I you know, I don't know. Yeah. No, I, I love that question. And I, and I've heard it from a lot of friends and a lot of folks in the space. Um, and for me, I, I do have a thought on it. Um, for me, I think about South Africa um, post-apartheid. Mm -hmm. um, and I think about truth and reconciliation. Um, and I think about Germany, uh, post sort of Holocaust, World War II and sins, mm -hmm. and the importance of national reckoning um, with what has happened. And mm -hmm. I, you know, and I think we see it now almost in an explosive manner um, in the United States that we have not had truth and reconciliation. Right. We have not sat with the sins um, that we are standing on the blood. And I am using these words intentionally, Joe, the yeah. blood that has been spilled, right. that lives within the soil 
that we build on. Um, and until we do that kind of truth and reconciliation at every altitude, right? At the federal kind of national level, states, like schools, right? Like there needs to be an accounting for what has happened and what is true. And we need to be able to take people's stories as valid. And yeah. not to say yeah. that it's like capital T truth, but it's their truth. Right. You know? Right. And so I, I do believe that there is a first step. And I think that, and something that I was very honest with, um, you know, our, our, uh, with nobles was my first question to them when I received the email invitation for the task force for grads of color was, okay, and what are you doing with the white students and the white grads and white parents? Mm-hmm. Right. Because the work, we have got to stop seeing anti-racist work as being sort of like the, the, the people of color really need, like, yes and, okay? When we talk about white supremacy, mm-hmm. all right, the word white is right there, right? We have got to understand and sit with our white brothers and sisters. And again, this has never been done. And we do not have a schema for it in our country uh, or the leadership. We have not had white leadership who is able to speak this truth from a yeah. personal mm-hmm. point of view as a white person. Right. I, and so, I, yeah. No, right. I'm so glad you're no, I'm so glad you're going there because it I didn't this just this just happened for me yesterday. I was on um was on a Zoom um, with, but the the author was um, an author who is talking not just about anti-racism, but about anti-white supremacy. Mm-hmm. Because he said he said the reason that which I thought was so interesting, the reason that our nation was able to come back together again so quickly, mm-hmm. uh, economically and politically after the Civil War, was mm-hmm. because we all bonded around white supremacy. Exactly. Right. So even though we didn't agree on slavery, mm-hmm. we decided to to let like let that go and let mm-hmm. it be what it was going to be in its next evolution. Um, but we all could agree on white supremacy. Correct. Right. And thank you for naming that point of history, because when we think about uh, pre-Civil War, right, the sort of dividing line was economic. Right. It was like the the northerners who were like sort of the industrialists and sort of the manufacturers. And then the south that had the labor of the enslaved folks um, and who were, you know, so it was sort of like and then it it was the sort of like northern, more kind of bourgeoisie. And then thinking about sort of like the quote unquote backwards, um, you know, plantation owner or whatever with their like with their morals. And so, yeah, you're absolutely correct. After the Civil War with, you know, the sort of um, abolishing of the institution of slavery, you know, kind of folks looked around and it's like, okay, well, at least we're all white. Right. You know, and so, and and so, and and here we go with Jim Crow. Right. And here we go with sort of institutionalizing and legalizing discrimination, putting it into the code of law as it's always been. Um, And so I, I think that's important. I think revisiting sort of how things came about to be will help us so much more to understand, um, this is this is why things are the way they are today. This is yeah. why folks are hitting the streets and are desperate yeah. because yeah. this has been forever. This That's has right. been forever. That's right. So okay, so this is interesting. So because you the the organization which you now run, which is called Education Trust. Mm-hmm. And well, I don't run it, but I am a part of it. Okay, sorry. <laughs> I feel like you're a very big part of it. <laughs> I appreciate it though. <laughs> well, you're, listen, you're the assistant director of partnerships. And um, yes. So, yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, but is, is this organization works on policy, um, mm-hmm. which impacts primarily, I would imagine, public school mm-hmm. students. Um, and, but it's all intertwined. Isn't it or shouldn't it be, you know, the the experiences that um, private school kids have and families of private school kids um, and public schools, it actually should all be intertwined um, mm-hmm. because by their very nature, right, they they operate in order to segregate. Right. And and then we, you know, we've installed these fixes, which are, you know, but like quite honestly, like what you experienced where you there was a pipeline right. to allow you to move through to Nobles. Right. Um, but it, so how, you know, so do tell us a little bit about what you do mm-hmm. and how you think about, 
what has to happen next in public school education because it, it seems to me, and I, I had the Stepping Stone folks on and I was saying to them, well, I don't understand, why, do, why, doesn't, why doesn't BPS just reach out to you and just take your playbook? And just do everything that you do, right? Because it would think you would want to just operate that way for all kids. Right. As a, right. But that seems to be a very heavy lift um, for BPS. But um, maybe you can talk a little bit about what you think needs to happen kind of first, second, third in order to um, give kids better education in this country. And then we can get into a little bit what, what's going to happen this yeah. year because of this Absolutely. crazy paradigm that we're in. Absolutely. Um, so actually, you know, as I think about your question, um, I return to history. Um, and if we think about, you know, w we'll keep it local for now, but I'll reference some national things as well. Yeah. If we think yeah. about um, Boston and our history uh, in terms of our public schools and obviously, you know, sort of the, again, searing memory of busing um, and attempts to integrate throughout the 1970s, um, not just here, but across the country. Mm -hmm. um, what we saw in response to efforts to integrate our schools was white flight. Yeah. We saw mm -hmm. white families saying, well, you can't make me go to school with X, you know, or you can't make me go to school in Roxbury. You can't, what we're going to do is we're going to pull our kids and we're going to put them in Catholic schools or we're going to pay some tuition and put them in private schools. And mm -hmm. what has happened as a result is a complete disinvestment in our public schools. Right. And we have seen that um, sort of happen parallel with uh, the diversification of our public schools. We know now that I believe, you know, and please correct me if I'm wrong, close to half of, you know, American public school students are students of color. Right. And mm -hmm. so... Again, let's call out what is apparent in the facts, which is racism um, has played a huge role uh, in the disinvestment um, and, and lack of attention that we have given to our schools. So, of so, course, mm -hmm, but there's, is, you know, when you say disinvestment, so just to just to add some context to what you're saying, that when when schools were either ordered like Boston was or decided to integrate, um, it was because kids of color who were living in certain parts of the city were having a very subpar experience. Right. They were they were maybe only required to go to school half the time as compared to white kids. Mm -hmm. They maybe didn't have books and pencils. And and so they were living in suboptimal um, situations. And and so the, the integ integration was really about optimization, like, like right. an acknowledgement that all kids should have books totally. and should have the same curriculum and should have the same experience. And, um, but it ended up just being this conversation about race as right. opposed to a conversation about equity. Mm -hmm. And, um, and, and then, and, and, and you're right. And then, and, and so people were able to like see a physical symptom, you know, or characteristic and, and si suddenly decide, well, I'm not going to do that because I don't look like that person mm -hmm. when it really had much more to do about the, you know, with the experience. And so. Right. And the yeah. experience, and, and, ju and just to combine those two things, Jill, right? Like it, it's about race and equity. It was about racial equity. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's mm -hmm. right. And power. Right. Like mm -hmm. the reason that those schools didn't receive the funding that white schools did is because no right. one could step in and say, we need this, we need equal funding. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, so. But so, if I could, if I could go one layer deeper yeah. um, in terms of this, this notion of disinvestment, the reason why, um, and disinvestment happens in multiple ways. It, it, I, when I say investment, it's not just monetary investment. Mm -hmm. um, it's also interest. It's political and public will. Right. Um, mm -hmm. It's a desire to do something about a problem, right? And so what we have seen is that, again, the impact of white flight compounded with the lack of political representation that communities of color have here in our local space, right? How can we possibly, um, at the highest levels of power, meaning uh, in the state legislature, uh, government, local sort of municipalities, how can we possibly say that we understand and feel the pain of families of color over time when the folks that are in place to represent us do not reflect us Often do not share quarters with us, right. um, and 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 that has continued to this day. Sonia Chang Diaz is the only and first Latina senator in Massachusetts. How can that be? Right. When you look at 
who lives in Massachusetts, who consumes in, in Massachusetts, who votes in Massachusetts, who lives here, who's immigrating here, and she is the only one, that is unacceptable. And that should put all of us on fire. Yeah. And then we look at the state house, it's not much better. Right. So, so how do you then do what you're trying to do? Right. So the work that I do, and sorry, you did ask me to share a little bit about the education trust. So if you'll and what allow the heck me, are um, you trying to do anyway? No. What the heck am I trying to do? Thank you, Jill. <laughs> Um, so I'll start with just by framing what EdTrust is, just in case folks listening don't know. And yeah. then I would love to talk about the work of MEEP, the Massachusetts Education Equity Partnership, which is really where the sort of heart um, of our work here in Massachusetts really lives. So EdTrust, for those who don't know, is a national education advocacy organization that has existed for over 20 years. And it has been um, squarely focused always on eliminating disparities in opportunity and achievement for historically underserved students namely for us, students of color, students with disabilities, English learners, and students from low-income backgrounds. Mm -hmm. And so kind of what we've been known for throughout the years is an institution organization that focuses on research, policy, and data analysis. And also we do advocacy work uh, to get the findings out there and support advocates who are on the ground um, across the country doing work on behalf of communities and with communities, um, which is the work that I'm doing with me. Um, and so here in Massachusetts, what we've done is, uh, and we've been around now for, um, I believe, just almost two years, uh, we've convened statewide advocates focused on civil rights, education, social justice. We have folks who focus on immigration and housing um, and essentially come together to drive collective action around educational equity, to hmm. promote educational equity, not just through policy and advocating for policy changes that are necessary, but also practice changes, things concretely that need to happen in our classrooms and in our communities. And the way we've done that is kind of two part. Um, and my sort of better half partner in crime, the Batman to my Robin, uh, Natasha Oshimirsky, uh, who is the state director for Massachusetts um, at EdTrust, mm -hmm. uh, the two of us work in tandem. Um, and what I love about you know, the gift that MEEP has been um, in my life selfishly is that it has been, it has become sort of a, with a lot of intention, um, a micro democratic container of, in my mind, the world as it should be, right? Here are all these folks, um, and those of us who know Massachusetts and know sort of how, how polarized our space can be, how, how sort of um, like, no, like this thing is mine and that is yours. And like, we don't play well together in the sandbox as Natasha likes to say, um, you know, and, and think about question two and that'll tell you everything you need to know in terms of the ways in which we, we have a way of kind of taking a, a side and staying there. And frankly, two things. One, that is a function and hear me out here of white supremacy. The, tell me the, why. The, the crabs in a barrel um, thing, right? The like, mm -hmm. we're only gonna, there's only a little bit for all of you, has created this condition um, in our communities, um, in, you know, between our community-based organizations, between nonprofits of lack of trust and lack of collaboration. Why? Mm -hmm. Because each of us has a little crumb and we have to protect that crumb or we're gonna have to dissolve, right? And so, and, I'm, and this is Mariel speaking from Mariel's perspective. <laughs> to yeah, be but, very well, okay, wait, let me cha let me challenge that a little bit to so that I can understand it better. Because so, if we're talking about funding, yeah. you know, so take 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 for example Boston Public Schools, which yeah. I would think is an example of what you're saying. Because and 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 in Boston, right, you do have loads of organizations um, all fighting for philanthropic dollars and maybe Correct. state and city dollars, and then um, and then you've got BPS, but. At BPS, BPS is on a. If you look at it on a per student basis, they're mm -hmm. extraordinarily well funded as compared to their sub suburban counterparts. Mm -hmm. So, so help me understand. Is it? Which is should it, tell us. Yeah. yeah we should tell us. It is. It is not a matter of the funding. It's a matter of how the institution has been constructed, and the institution itself. And this is how. This is where I think the conversation should rest. Because when we talk about anti-racism, when we talk about systemic racism, I know that for folks, especially folks who are coming to the conversation for the first time, 
it can kind of lose its meaning and you can kind of not really understand what we mean by it. BPS and what you just said is a perfect example of how systemic racism um, can continue to perpetuate itself even when the money is there. The structures are not providing what we need. And if you were to ask me, and I know I'm not, I'm not alone in, in sort of thinking this, unfortunately, the, the funding and resources that have come the way of BPS, mm-hmm. and again, like BPS is my home district. I know folks work extremely hard. And at the same time, we're, we're not going to get to the results we want to see if we don't fundamentally challenge how we do what we do. And frankly, the mayor has to be called in to understand his role in, in having this structure stay in place. So how does that, um, I agree with you and, um, I don't want to, I don't want to give you my opinion yet, it's, but there are conversations <laughs> going, going on right now that would suggest that, um, maybe if we fix things, um, the high school level, right? So, so yeah. we rethink high schools, maybe we rethink exam schools, um, things could get fixed. Yeah. Is, is that, is that plausible? Cause it feels like, well, I don't want to give you, you talk, tell me first. I'll play, I'll play right. You're I love steeped you for in trying it. to like hide the hand. But. I'm not going to tell you what I think. So here's what I was about to share that I did it was um, what I have seen and others have seen also. And again, like I was a student in BPS until 2000 um, and then transitioned to nobles, but obviously have been in the space, was a teacher myself, is we have tinkered at the margins of change. Right. Right. We, okay, we're going to do this one thing here. We're going to tackle like, like start times. We're going to do, we have got to have a comprehensive overhaul of the Boston public schools. Yeah. And I'm not, to be very clear, like I'm not necessarily talking of, of, of takeover or receivership. I'm truly talking about all relevant stakeholders engaging in a strategic process where we come together, and and I'm talking about, yes, teachers in the district, yes, longtime community members who have themselves gone through the schools, their children and their grandchildren have come through these schools, and they have the institutional memory to know what things have remained problematic in the same. Yes, I'm talking about parents. I'm talking about parents who are never heard. Parents who are never heard because they happen to not speak English, because you know they have insecure housing and so therefore hard to track them down or identify a number for them. We have got to do better. We, we need the mayor at that same table, equally side by side with these stakeholders. And together, we need to really kind of figure out what is going on here. Because you know, looking at the high schools in isolation without studying and looking at what that's connected to and the ripple effects that that'll have, you know, we can't talk about the high schools without talking about the elementary schools too. Right. And then right. we can't talk about that without talking about the challenges we have around like our middle schooling and versus K-8 and like all the different designations we have in BPS and the decentralization that is unfortunate in the sense that it, it doesn't allow for us to think about solutions that are common across the district. So what you're, what you're, what you're asking for though requires um, tremendous leadership yeah. that where that leadership cares deeply about education. Exactly. I mean, like with, if you don't have that, then we can't even take the, you can't even have the conversation. The the conversation will continue to be the conversation. It won't be action. Exactly. Exactly. Which is why, (laughs) you know, again, when we think about kind of like where we're at right now, we have to be able to identify because it, it, the things that we've been doing have not worked and we keep doing them. And we keep doing them because fundamentally, Jill, we are not listening. And I know that folks are like, oh, yeah, I'm listening. We are not listening. And if there is anything that COVID and these pandemics that are both viral and racial in nature have exposed as naked as can be, is that we have done a shoddy job ever truly sitting side by side with the pain of underserved communities in our city and across the country. Well, I, I, you know, I do worry about that because um, it, it feels to me like COVID-19 is creating um, conditions for, for another episode of white flight. Oh my goodness. 
And I have no idea. I'm now I'm just making predicting into the future. Who knows if this is true? But it but it is interesting to me that um, housing prices are holding steady or up in the suburbs, and um, and then you know second homes. Like you can't. There's a market for second homes right now mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. that has not looked like this in in a while, mm-hmm. um, and that feels a little bit like we don't we don't trust or are not very excited mm-hmm. about the educational experience that's being promised to us for the next year. Oh, and sure, so yeah. we're going to, we're going to get yeah. creative about, and, and not, and, and that, that's really going to create conditions where we're not focusing dollars in the right way, because there are going to be a bunch of our students who don't get to opt into that situation, but the money's not going to be where the money should be to support right. them. Right. And, you know, an, another example that points to the dynamic that you are identifying is this sort of the, the academic pods, the learning pods that I know a lot of suburban families are sort of in the process of arranging right now. Right. And to be clear, I do not hold I do not hold anything against those families. Like no. you do what you got to do to ensure right. that your babies get the education that you feel that they deserve. Right. The rub here is that every single child and every single family should have the exact same access to that kind of experience, right? And so, so no, you know, my family, <laughs> like we have one apartment in High Park and we can't leave that apartment. That's right. Right. There, there's no second home. There's no going to the Cape. There's no, um, we are in it. And when COVID is exploding all around you right? and your friends, I mean, Joe, when I tell you. There was a time around March, April, when I would open my Facebook feed and it was just a litany of RIP. Yeah. Right. I, I still live with that and I still carry that and all the loss that has happened. Right. And so when we talk about a deepening of the divide, a deepening of inequity, this is what we're talking about. And because, as we have stated, we do not have the leadership, the courageous leadership, nor the political will to do more by our public schools and by underserved students, we are we are literally marching straight into just a cliff of inequity. Yeah. Because what we are doing currently in terms of our our, our plans, they're not going to cut it. They're not going to cut it. No, I, I know, and um, it it is a real failure of leadership across the country right now. I mean. There's so much fear, and it's disproportionate fear. There's, mm-hmm. um, you know, the poor and people of color are are carrying most of the weight of this yeah. crisis, and, um, you know, I I I don't I don't look at Facebook, but um, I I don't I, I look at Instagram. I don't see, I don't have that view, yeah, that, that you have, and um, it. it it's right now worrying me, right? That you and I do not have that shared experience. Um, and so we're grounded in very different realities when we think about what the fall looks like yeah. for, for kids. Cause I, it's, a, it's, we're just going back to the same thing that you said, like, if you can't, you have to sit in the yeah. place, you know, with the person who, who you're, for whom you're trying to solve the conditions. Yeah. And, um, and there's so much fear that not all of us are sharing, and, and the other thing that we should be sharing is this like compassionate love. Yeah. And, and but, but we, we're not because we're, we're becoming siloed. And, um, so it just all, it all speaks to, to what you're saying, which is not very optimistic. This is a very not optimistic conversation. Well, well let me drop some optimism in here yeah. because so I genuinely, yeah, I genuinely believe that the work that the Massachusetts Education Equity Partnership is doing one selfishly is single-handedly keeping hope in my heart and two genuinely believe that we are making a difference um, in our local space. Um, We have over 30 partners and together what we've been able to do is, is two things. Um, We've been able to bring together historically excluded nonprofits, CBOs, leaders of communities that have been the ones doing the, the hustling and the working and the grinding directly with our families, but often never get a seat at sort of the, the large tables of decision making. So these are organizations like High Square Task Force. These are organizations like the Immigrant Family Services Institute, IFSI. 
that supports Haitian immigrants in Mattapan, Dorchester, um, and Hyde Park. These are folks who can can truly, I mean, Gerald Gabo, who's the executive director of IFSI, is able to bring together over 150 families within a few days because that's the level of trust and organizing that these folks have been able to do, right? Yeah. So MEET is all about how do we bring together individuals and organizations like that, particularly organizations led by people of color, with historically included organizations, those who more often get seats at the table. And those are sort of like the Teach Pluses and the E4Es that together, when we bring, when we reimagine what the table can look like, and we bring all these folks together, and we focus it on their humanity and really changing how we engage. We really at the meat table talk about, listen, we agree on 80% of stuff, right? We, re- we all come together because we value educational equity. We're going to leave the 20% that we have d- different beliefs on, whether it be like assessment things or charter school stuff. Like we're going to put that to the side and we're going to focus on what we do agree on. And we're going to drive hard at that change. And that has been game changing. We have folks at the table who previously would never sit together, Hmm. ever, and and multiple folks, right? But what we have created is a container that is rooted in psychological safety, where we address the social emotional needs of adults, because we forget, and especially in this moment of pandemic, that we are not robots, that people are human beings with pains and joys and worries and desires and dreams. And we recognize that within me. Yeah. And I'm sure for, for some listening, that might sound kind of strange. Like, wait, is this like a, is it an advocacy coalition? It's like, yes, we are an advocacy coalition. But at the heart of any organizing project, when we think about the social movements of our time uh, throughout history, throughout the 20th century, you notice that there is a deep and real emotional and spiritual component to the work that people do. There is a joyful component to the work that people do. And that is me. And uh, and we have to be able to live that ourselves in order to create the world as we wish to see it, right? In order to create a Boston, to create a Massachusetts that is collaborative, that is equity focused, that is unapologetic, that is, you know, all of those things at once, we have to be able to build it first. And so the last two years have consisted of that. And, you know, what what has been so phenomenal, um, you know, throughout the last six months that has come with so much pain on the one hand, but also this beautiful expression of collective power uh, that I have seen through me um, has really been game-changing for me in terms of understanding what are the possibilities here for Massachusetts. There is so much more, and now I'm getting like, I'm getting hot. (laughs) There is so much more that we are capable of than what we're doing. I mean, I look around at other states. And again, Ed Trust is a national organization. I have colleagues in California, Tennessee, Louisiana, everywhere in between. And I hear about what's happening. And then I look at my own backyard and the insane amount of resources that we have um, in terms of our historical resources and what we have been and what we have represented to the United States uh, and what we pride ourselves in being sort of like this, like, the city on a hill and, you know, this this place that has been the cradle of the American Revolution and all of these things, that's a part of our DNA. We have all of these institutions of higher learning and research institutions that are right there. You know, we've heard the mayor and others talking about, well, like, the students make, make Boston what it is. Okay, so let's leverage those students. Let's leverage those institutions, right? We have a philanthropic space that is the envy of most of the country, right? right. right? And yet, and yet, we look at what's happening, not just in Boston, but look at Worcester, look at Springfield, look at Lawrence and Chelsea. It is unacceptable how we have left these places to just figure it out. It's not right. It's not right. So in all of this, you you were engaged with the Department of Education to talk about, I would imagine, a number of these things as the state thought about recommendations for back to school. Were you were you pleased with those conversations? Do you feel like the recommendations um, 
are equitable recommendations. It's it's interesting to see what's happening right now where you see a lot of um, schools systems just completely opting out of the advice and saying, right. you know what, we're going to, we're going to take a pause right. and see what happens. What's your, what was your perspective yeah. on it as you were working on it? And, and now as you're seeing it play out? Yeah. And if you'll allow me, I'd love to just back us up to the beginning of the pandemic as a yeah. way to illustrate sort of what I perceive to be the missteps. Yeah. Um, the, the, the good thing and the dangerous thing about policy is that it creates the framework within which we operate, right? It sort of sets the table, it sets the conversation, it, 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 it kind of gives the marching orders off of which you work. Um, and if we think about back to March, <laughs> yeah. unfortunately what we see is the inconsistency of the response at, at all the levels, not just at, at, at DESE, uh, the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education, but throughout our leadership, right? There are, there are places to be fair, um, and to give credit where the response has been phenomenal and many of the reasons why Massachusetts is doing is faring better in, in um, across many metrics and other places is be- in part because of that. Uh, we cannot say the same about our educational response. Hmm. Um, we have seen the impact of uh, the lack of clear guidance and expectations from the state, certainly in the first month and a half or so that has contributed to that sort of I mean, ask anybody, Joe, ask a teacher, ask a principal. Everyone is kind of looking to the left or the right to see who is the who is the one that's going to say something. That should not be happening. Right. So remote learning decisions have been left up to individual districts, individual schools, individual teachers and frankly, individual families. Right. So the folks in, in the in the most unable to have agency in figuring this out are the folks that are being told, hey, um, it's, 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 it's go time for you when really what, what has happened is sort of, and I, and I, you know, I know this is a strong word. It's been an abdication of leadership. Um, and when it, and, and when it comes to school reopening, the guidance, uh, or sets of guidance that Desi has shared has definitely shaped that conversation. Unfortunately, the strong emphasis on reopening buildings and like the physical spaces yeah. has meant that many of our district leaders, many of our principals have literally spent the summer measuring classrooms, looking at bus schedules, and trying to figure out the incredibly complex logistics involved in getting kids back in buildings. In the meantime, there's been very little attention paid to what is actually going to happen for kids right. when they are in school in terms of instruction, in terms of social-emotional supports. I mean, I w- I've been asking questions since June about, okay, because I've been in the classroom, right? If my kids are going to be in rows, six feet apart with their masks on, and they're going to be sitting there for lunch. And, you know, around like January, it's going to be impossible to go outside. Am I literally going to be a prison cell warden? I know. Like I, that keeps me up at night. I know, me too. We have not given any guidance, Mm -mm. you know, with regards to that. So we really wish, you know, within me and at a trust, we really wish that the guidance had instead prompt the districts to start with the needs of families and students right. uh, and with a commitment to making sure that the learning continues. Yeah. Well, you know, with, with, with the needs of, of the students and families, and I think with, with exactly. goals in mind, right? Like, I mean, ultimately right. this is, it, the goals are not, goals are great goals and they're achievable in lots of different ways, right? Like make sure that kids stay on grade level in mm-hmm. math and reading, especially, um, and, and ensure that they are healthy you know, physically right. and mentally and socially. So, yeah. but, but all this, everything else is out the window because yeah. buildings are dangerous. This thing is toxic. It's invisible. Um, mm-hmm. So everything else is like, then, then you have to just, you have to say, okay, well, what are all the assets that help right. us achieve the goal? And in which ways do we, right? Like maybe the building mm-hmm. should only be used to deal with social emotional needs maybe they wish they should be used for kids who need safe spaces that are technology connected i mean we there didn't are so many ways we could have approached this that actually met the needs and actually addressed the problems that our families are identifying but this is this is when it comes down to leadership right because fear right. drove these decisions fear and yeah. time but we working mm-hmm. under ridiculous time constraints and with a lot of fear and mm-hmm. and no love and and so mm-hmm. thank you for saying that thank yeah. you so much for saying that because 
that is the ingredient that informs all of this. And I'm going to butcher this quote, but I know, you know, it's like, um, just, what's the quote that's like, justice is what love looks like in public. It's like something about love and what love looks like in public. I don't even, um, and like, and when we talk about, you know, to to nerd out for a second, um, the book, Other People's Children by Lisa Delpit, which for a lot of educators is sort of foundational, right? And the whole notion of it is that we have got to see our students as our own. We have got, because when you see a kid as your own, when you see somebody as your cousin, when you see somebody as like, oh, you look just like my brother, right? You act differently because what we're seeing, right? With the example of the the, the pods that are being constructed in a lot of um, sort of more resourced uh, families and communities is you would do anything for your kid. It's love. You would move the earth to make sure that they could just be a little bit better. Right. How, how have we made it? And I have chills as I'm saying this. How have we allowed ourselves to make it okay that our kids have been in buildings with poor ventilation and low air quality as long as they have? How have we allowed tattered books from the 60s and 70s to be the texts that our kids are learning from still? Yeah. This this is not new. And this is why, you know, these pandemics is sort of this cosmic reckoning on some level of yeah. just like you yeah. guys, like this is not just like, oh my gosh, we have to figure out the vents. <laughs> like yeah. we should have been yeah. figuring out the vents 25, 50 years ago when, you know, Joey's mom was in BPS experiencing the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, it is interesting. It is interesting, but it, it does, it takes very brave souls. Um, leading an institution to to lean in to things like that and acknowledge them and say, okay, we're you know what we're we're going to have to completely rethink this thing, and to right. sit in the shoes for whom we need to rethink things. It takes um, humility, frankly, yeah. uh, and, right. and and an admission that you could have been wrong. That's right. And so, we, you know, yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Jill. No, you're totally <laughs> right. Um, by the way, it was Cornell West who said that. Oh my God! Of course, my former teacher. Uh, <laughs> I was like, somebody told me. Yeah. yeah Never forget that justice is what love looks like in public. Thank you, Cornell. Yeah. Amazing. Um, okay. So we could talk for a long time, and I'm sure we're going to talk a lot this fall, but tell me, where, what are you paying attention to as we head into the 2021 school year? What, what do you have your eye on? And, and what should all of us from our different camps be thinking about and, and doing to, I don't know, either chip away at change or um, influence folks to pay attention to what should be changed. Yeah. And, and there are three things that I would say are core to address um, as we are moving forward. And these are sort of um, right now, MEEP is engaged in what we're calling the a hashtag meet the moment Massachusetts campaign really focus on hearing directly uh, the truth of our families through video testimonies. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll let you and others know, Joe, when the time comes, uh, when we'll have this event. But really, yeah. here are the three mm-hmm. things that we are wanting to shine a light on. One is the digital divide. Again, one of these things that has existed forever, um, especially as we've moved into this 21st century, we're 20 years, y'all, into the 21st century, and we're still talking about 21st century skills. And, and yet there are parts of our state that quite literally cannot even access internet, <laughs> I know. you know? And so now that we find ourselves with this dire need to be able to communicate, um, you know, we're, we're seeing the issues with that. So every student needs to have a device and internet access. We have to purposely build digital literacy, not just for, you know, students and certainly their families who are now helping them navigate um, these systems uh, of technology, but our educators, we cannot assume that our teachers are just ready, <laughs> you know, to just like, let's just move on to Zoom, everybody, as if, you know, everyone has those skills. You know, we, we have to be able to, for example, get to a place where, depending on need, we can hold virtual back to school nights where parents are walked through how to access learning platforms. We have to make sure that there's tech support available in various languages because technology breaks, technology glitches. Uh, even when it's adults handling them, right? Yeah. 
Well, here's the thing too. It could work very well. I mean, you know, we, we pay attention to the school committee meetings and they're all on zoom right now. And you know, this, this has grown, public comment has grown from being in the dozens Mm -hmm. to, there was nine, there were not, there were 96 public speakers at the last. And that, I mean, it's because like, this is the great connector, right? You don't need to get in your car. You don't need to get a babysitter. You don't need to, Mm -hmm. you know, get on, you know, a a train or some other form of public transportation to get to a single destination. You just dial in. So as long as you have connectivity, you can participate. So, Which so is in why many ways, I, I, front, I front loaded that because that has got to be first. Yeah. Uh, without that, it, how are we gonna? How are we gonna do this, you guys? Right. Um, and I appreciate, you know, you saying like this is this is <laughs> this the equity. This is the sort of the irony of all of this that this moment has actually created opportunities for equity where there haven't been. That's so right. the example you just shared with the school committee is, I think, a perfect example. I'll give you a second personal example. For my doctoral capstone defense, which happened in April, I was devastated that we had to move to Zoom and I had to defend online. Guess what? It meant that I was able to invite my fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Shaw, that I mentioned Aww. earlier, who lives in Florida. I was able to invite her. I, got, I had my cousins from the Dominican Republic calling in. I had my dad, who lives in Connecticut, who was able to call in with his whole family and so in a, wow. in a way, wow. it was this, the most beautiful experience I've ever had. And sure, I was by myself in my bedroom, but I felt <laughs> so lifted, so supported and encouraged and loved. And so there's an opportunity to really think about how we can think about technology as a way to equalize that's opportunity. Right. Um, and so that's number one. Number two, I, I, again, I know that we use sort of like build relationships with students and families and people kind of hear it and glaze over it. I'm just going to repeat it for emphasis. We have got to build trusting relationships with students and families, particularly because there's so much broken trust mm-hmm. that uh, are the is that informs sort of the historical relationship between school systems and right. under students of color and families of color. So we have to recognize again the truth and reconciliation thing. We have to recognize where we have failed. Um, in order to get to a place of, okay, and let's work together. Um, We have got to conduct a community needs assessment in every community to understand what every family needs. And this is not, and I know it's a Herculean task, and we have to do it. We have to do it. There has been too much loss on, on so many levels, not just physical human loss of life, but folks are struggling with rent, um, they're worried about being removed from their houses. I mean, look at Chelsea. There are, there are families who, you know, were sick with COVID, were hospitalized because they were intubated and have come back to their homes to find the locks have been changed and their stuff has been left outside. This is happening in our backyard. Right. And that is unacceptable. So we need to understand with detail what our families have lived and are living and are worried about because otherwise, how can we possibly teach their kids? And so wanting to make sure, uh, for example, there's an organization called Ed Navigator, and the whole concept of Ed Navigator is we're going to assign a navigator to support individual families through this mess that can be our school system, right? And so that concept can be something that we can leverage in this moment. And a navigator can be a staff member, it can be a community member who, you know, has the time and is interested and has the skills. Um, So that's number two. Um, and again, wanting to make sure that there are adequate and appropriate translations where necessary and folks who, for the most highest need families, you know, our families who are undocumented, our families who are struggling uh, with inconsistent housing or are homeless, you know, those require certain, again, empathy skills and abilities to listen and, and hear and, and provide resources. And so prioritizing a needs assessment for those families. And the third thing I'll close with um, is really thinking about in the next year, again, the instructional core. We have, we have tinkered around overhauling and thinking about our curriculum time and time again, and it is time for a strong, culturally responsive curriculum. Mm-hmm. And again, we hear culturally responsive, and it's like, it almost becomes like a buzzword. Yeah. What we mean by that is look at the world around us. Um, look at the fact that our cities are quite literally on fire, um, that Black people are being murdered on the streets and it's being filmed and consumed 
and shown over and over again, that is traumatizing. There are, and it's not just us, there are so many folks out there who are trying, you know, I'm going to shout out the Chelsea Collaborative in, in Chelsea and Gladys right. Vega. Their yeah. direct, I mean, the work that they have single-handedly done in this community since the outset of the pandemic, my sister lives in Chelsea, was sick with COVID and her wife for 45 days. I texted my friend who happens to be the niece of Gladys and I said, I cannot figure out how to get food to my sister. She went herself to Stop and Shop, literally asked me, what kind of cereal do the kids like? Oh, do you um, understand? Yeah, that's an incredible that organization. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. That question just like, I was like, girl, get whatever you want. It doesn't need like, something <laughs> to eat. But the fact that she was like, what cereal do her kids like to eat? That's love. That is love. That is love. You know? And there's a lot of that happening right now, but yeah. there's, yeah. there's a lot that we need to lean into and to, and to take advantage. Cause I, I don't think this is, um, this is a short term thing. And so yeah, even not. though maybe we didn't, um, go about it the first time around, I, I think there's still plenty of time to get this right. And, and so Absolutely. we can't, we can't make the first day of school be the last day of thinking about this. Um, mm, thank you, know. you. Yes. You need yeah. to quote that. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but thank you so much for being on the podcast. It was wonderful to talk with you and um, oh we'll gosh, be in touch. So, yeah, such a privilege. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Absolutely. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Marielle Novas, a community leader who is doing the hard and necessary work to create equitable education opportunities for all students. I look forward to supporting Marielle and the work she is leaning into this fall closing the digital divide, addressing the pervasive trust issues between families and schools, and addressing the inequities of our current school curriculums. I hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your friends. Have a great day.